This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today's guest is a professor and co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law and former senior counsel at the ACLU in Los Angeles, Ahilan T. Arulanathan. Pleasure to have you on. Thanks very much, Ian. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thank you. And also our lead researcher, Luke Bianco. Thanks for joining again. Very happy to be here. So I really want to just start with your background and your family's roots in Sri Lanka. The, the origins are actually quite amazing. So um, I want to hear about that and what from your family's experience has informed your spirit of civic engagement and ultimately led you to pursue a career in defending human rights. Uh, yeah, I'm, I was born here, but my family is from Sri Lanka. We're from Jaffna, which is the northernmost part of the country. People who follow immigration law will know um, a little bit at least because there's a lot of Tamil refugees that have um, fled all, all around the world um, after the civil war started in Sri Lanka when I was 10 years old. My parents had left because there was race discrimination, job discrimination, and there had been a few kind of sporadic anti-Tamil like pogroms that had happened at different points when they were growing up. But it's not like they they didn't flee like asylum kind of flee. They wanted to build a better life and they thought that they could do that, you know, here. But yeah, then when I was 10, the Civil War started and the vast majority of my extended family, almost all of it, got out over the course of the next like four or five years. And that accompanied around a million people overall fleeing Tamils, fleeing Sri Lanka, Northeast Sri Lanka over the course. I mean, they're still leaving, you know, but, but you know, it's been, been happening over the course of decades. Um, so a lot of them came to stay at our house and a bunch of, there was a little community in Lancaster, California, where I had grown up of Sri Lankan Tamil families um, who had come in like the seventies. And then a bunch of them had their extended families come. So a lot of my friends went through the same thing, our like closest family friends. Everyone had their cousins and aunts and uncles coming and living in their house. And, you know, it's complicated. I was 10 years old, I was a little bratty. I didn't kind of get it. And I was, um, you know, a little bit like, you know, I'm American and, um, you know, what's wrong with you that you don't understand what it's like to go to school here and stuff like that. Um, but over time, I think um, I also absorbed a lot of the um, experience of what it was like for my cousins. Um, I'd say my cousins, I mean, some of them uh, went to other parts of the country, even went to in other parts of the world rather. Um, and so I have cousins in like Australia, uh, Singapore, <laughs> um, for a long time in Zimbabwe, you know, England, Canada, India, but then also a lot of them stayed in, in California. And so we're really close and it's amazing, actually, you know, our Thanksgivings and our Christmases are incredible because I have like all these wow. first cousins. And, you know, diverse. Yeah. yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> um, during COVID, it's been really interesting. In fact, just over this past weekend, we were comparing because in, in COVID, like a lot of things, you know, the WhatsApp group sort of got uh, intensive. We started doing these like regular family calls. It's said, all right, the family calls have people from Australia, um, Sri Lanka, Saudi Arabia, England, Canada, like all over the, yeah, all over the place. And, um, and we're comparing lockdowns. And it's so interesting to compare what's happening in different parts of the world. And I'm comparing the people who I lived with for a couple of years, you know, like we're close and we've stayed in touch 
work, I think like fundamentally, I feel like, you know, you have a family connection with somebody, you know, what matters is them being stable and happy. That's like what's important in life, not, not you know, what country they were born in or where they came from or how they got there. And of course, everybody's like, you know, everybody has a, it hasn't, it is somebody's child. Everybody is somebody's, you know, brother or sister or whatever. Um, and so trying to bring that humanity to immigration law is, I think, that's, that's, I think, a lot of what drove me into this work originally. Absolutely. And you, you've really, you touched on how immigration and immigration narratives have kind of shaped your own experience growing up, though, you know, you yourself were not an immigrant, but, you know, your close relationship with, with many family members who were. And through your career, you've really gone on and, and shaped the lives of hundreds and thousands of, of immigrants through your work. Um, so we wanted to use this opportunity to kind of highlight some of these really high profile cases that you've argued, both uh, on, in federal court, in Supreme Court, et cetera. Um, so a couple of ones that just kind of immediately come to mind would be Franco Gonzalez v. Holder, uh, Jennings v. Rodriguez. Um, and then I understand that you are currently arguing for TPS in Ramos v. Nielsen. Um, so would you be able to talk about some of those cases? I understand they're very different, um, but that experience of arguing on really the highest stages uh, of the country. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, the first case you mentioned, uh, Franco Gonzalez, is the, the, was the first case to establish a right to appointed counsel for any group of immigrants facing deportation. And that group of immigrants is people with serious mental disorders. Um, it was a class action that we filed in 2010 um, for um, people with serious mental disorders in Washington, California, and Arizona. Um, at the time we filed it, the government didn't even know how many people there were like that. Um, they kept no track of it. They didn't even do screening for mental health and share the information with any of the immigration court. So the, the immigration judge is a person coming in front of them. They have no idea that maybe they're being treated with um, you know, anti-psychotic medication in the um, detention center um, and are suicidal. And then they're coming into court the next day and saying, yes, I want to forget it, whatever, whatever. I just want to waive my rights. And, and the judge has no even no idea um, that you know the person is in this situation or a person with a severe cognitive impairment, which is you know, Mr. Franco. He spent four and a half years in an immigration detention center with no active proceedings in his case because they just lost his case literally. And um, you know, he was just sitting there like in a like a like a the gulag or something. Um, so yeah, I'm incredibly proud of, uh, of Franco. Uh, it was a, it's not just me; it's an incredible team of people. Um, um, uh, other public interest organizations, uh, the firm Sullivan and Cromwell, which just like poured just their heart and soul and hours of work into it. Um, and yeah, like public council, Northwest Immigrants Rights Project, Mental Health Advocacy Services, a big group of people that worked on it. Um, but yeah, it was, it, and, that, and that exists. And, and right now it's the only, it, it remains the only federally funded system. So now if you have a serious mental disorder and the immigration judge determines that you can't represent yourself, then the judge orders the appointment of a lawyer and in every jurisdiction, and now it's operating, the government voluntarily extended it to other parts of the country too. So in those courts, it's, it's like a federal, it's like a public defender system, you know, which is what, what actually all deportation cases deserve is a public defender system. And we actually had that for this little tiny slice of the cases. Um, James V. Rodriguez, um, yeah, that's the case I argued twice in the Supreme Court. Um, is another one where you know it's like many many years um you know in some ways labor of love um, that injunction is still operating 
only in the Central District of California. So the result of the Supreme Court case was they sort of wiped it out in other parts, but not there. Um, and that's, it's so minimal. Even to say it, it feels almost embarrassing to me. What it is, is if you've been locked up in immigration detention, um, and I'm sure your reader, your um, listeners will know, right? Immigration detention is jail. It's jail. It's run by private prison companies for the most part. You wear an orange jumpsuit, or maybe it's blue. Um, you know, it's jail. And um, and yet you have no right to an appointed lawyer. You have no right to ask a judge for release on bond. You can't even go in front of the judge and say, hey, can the government actually prove that you need to lock me up to make sure I show to immigration court? Um, and so what, what, what Rodriguez is about is when people have been held for six months, which is a really long time, you know, it's a really long time, and your case is still pending, it's still ongoing, you should have the right to go in front of the judge and ask for release on bond. And you should get bond unless the government can show that it actually has to lock you up to make sure that you will appear in court. Um, and it's amazing to me and disappointing that it's now I think it's 13, 14, 13 or 14 years that I've litigated um, Rodriguez and been into the Supreme Court, you know, two Supreme Court arguments. I think I've had like four or five Ninth Circuit arguments in Rodriguez, you know, and up and down on class certification, on preliminary injunction, and, and still it's only in the Central District of California where this rule is operating. Um, and, and in other parts of the country, there are still people who go for years and they never even get to ask the judge whether their detention, is, nobody even looks and figures out if your detention is actually important or not, you know, that, that you actually need it to happen. It's stunning to me. Um, so yeah, but that's still going on. And, um, you know, I left the ACLU and joined UCLA, but I remain co-counsel on that case and we're still still litigating it. Um, we'd kind of hoped maybe the Biden administration would agree that you don't have to, you know, you can ask, give people the right to ask a judge before they lock them up for, for months and years on end. Um, well, yeah, I know with the TPS, that was during your time at ACLU, correct? Yeah, although that also I kept. I kept a few cases with me um, mm -hmm. as I came over, and that's one of them. So Ramos, I'm still, I'm still litigating. Right. So with that, and that was during the, the last administration. As a senior counsel at the ACLU, when you're faced with, uh, let's say, so much resistance, from an administration, like how were you able to still get your initiatives across and, uh, and push forward in, in the face of such challenges and, and obstacles? Yeah, I mean, it was, it definitely got harder in the Trump administration. There's no question about it. And I think the combination of the administration being so openly hostile to um, sort of every conceivable immigrants' rights issue. Mm -hmm. Um, except for Venezuelans <laughs> who got um, uh, something, a deferred enforcement departure on, on the like third to last day of the Trump administration, right? like yeah. other than them. Um, uh, but uh, actually that, that itself is kind of a funny thing, um, not to get too diverted from your question, but you know, all these concerns about, oh, if you, if you grant humanitarian protection to people, it's a magnet and it'll cause other people to come and it'll open the border and all this. But then 300,000 Venezuelans you can give protection to, and nobody's worried about that, you know? Um, and I, I mean, I believe they deserve it. They absolutely deserve it, but so do a whole lot of other people. But anyway, yeah, I mean, it definitely, it definitely got harder in the Trump administration. There's no doubt about it. I think that's um, a combination of the fact that the administration was so aggressive and so um, persistent 
you know, and in and in a way like really good at being awful to immigrants. You know, they were they weren't so good at the beginning. They made a lot of mistakes and did things that, but they kept going after it. So you know, Muslim ban one is um, is um, racist, but it is also overbroad for due process reasons. And the courts strike it down. What do they do? They don't they don't walk away. They they write Muslim ban two, and then that, then they write Muslim ban three. Uh, and the same thing with asylum. You know, they wanted to end asylum. That was really what they wanted to do. So they try one way, um, you know, the, the third country, I mean, there's a bunch of them. I don't remember, you know, at first they said you can't apply for it if you're crossing, um, uh, you know, in the desert. And then they strike that down. Then they, then they try third country ban, like, oh, if you've gone through Guatemala, then you can't get it if you're from Honduras. Then finally they find MPP. It's like the third cut at it. And MPP actually works to massively decrease access to the asylum system. They're still not done because still some people are getting through. And then coronavirus comes, boom, they shut it and close the whole door. Now, one thing I have not seen from the Biden administration thus far is the same kind of persistence on the top line. And we'll see, you know, it remains to be done, but like that moratorium, which they put in place right out of the gate, right? It was amazing. They, they said, moratorium, we will stop all deportations for 100 days, uh, which is a remarkable, incredibly um, powerful um, initiative. It gets struck down in court, no appeal, no attempt to rewrite it, nothing. You know, they just walk away from it. And that's a that's a really stark difference. So that was tough. That was one thing that was really tough during the Trump era. And it required us and all the people in the in the movement to be just as persistent. Mm -hmm. And it got tiring, you know, it was yeah. really tough. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, because I was gonna ask about like as an organization or leadership, did that sort of shift your strategy or tactics or even expectations of outcomes yeah it did for sure so like tps is a great example of that so you know i had actually um become the director of advocacy of all of the aclu of southern california's work so it was like more like a management slash leadership kind of position where i was still doing a little bit of immigration work more than a little bit i was still doing a fair amount but i was doing all this other supervision and the idea was that i would not take on new cases and then the TPS terminations happened. And there really wasn't another part of the ACLU where they had the resources to <clears throat> bring big litigation to challenge the TPS termination. It's 400,000 people. Most of them have lived here for 20 years, almost all of them lawfully for all that time. They've got like 200,000 American children, most of whom are school-aged. It's a serious thing. It's a huge impact. It's almost the size of DACA, right? But the organization at this point is you know, everything I just mentioned, right? There's like the, the wall and Muslim ban. And when we started the TPS litigation, the Muslim ban was not over. The Supreme Court hadn't decided it yet. And it was early 2018 that we sued. So it's just like, nobody had the resources to do this stuff. And so it definitely affected our strategy. I stepped down and went back to, and that's when I became a senior um, uh, uh, counsel, gave up the kind of leadership job, mostly to do this other case. Um, because we just didn't think kind of collectively that it made that much sense to have, um, you know, one of the most senior immigrants rights litigators off the board, um, essentially at a time when the administration was just going after it again and again. So yeah, it definitely did change. Um, and obviously the changing composition of the courts and especially the Supreme Court changes your calculus about everything. You know, you, you have to you, you think in terms of what you can win and um, what you can win in the lower courts and what they can get a stay on. You know, I think it made a big difference for us that um, you know these people had lived here. Our TPS clients have lived here for so long. The government just cannot seriously argue 
that there's some irreparable harm if you know you immediately cut off all their all their you know if you let them live here for another 18 months or something or three years or whatever the time it takes to litigate the case and you know they didn't seek a stay which i'm very very grateful for after we won the injunction in october of 2018 that preserved tps for these you know all these countries and the government did not go up and try and tell the supreme court oh you have to get rid of this immediately you have to let us kill terminate you know tps right now um and and i, I was grateful for that fact because it allowed the injunction to remain in place and that's the same injunction right. that's in place right you mentioned that uh you kind of hoped with the with the biden administration there would be maybe some momentum to to get some some movement on on cases such as jennings and have you noticed that there's been a sense of almost like inertia from the trump administration of you know it's it's hard to flip that switch even if there's a, a new president and you know a new senate to instantly go and kind of reverse everything I, yeah i think the way you just described it is exactly right now on the one hand i do think that they they unquestionably the biden administration wants to turn the page and Muslim ban on day one, an African ban similarly, and MPP immediately, and then wind it down. Um, and there's a lot of things that they've done, which do, I think, reflect a genuine desire to flip the switch. The prosecutorial discretion memos that have come out have been remarkable. And they really are, are transformative, um, really important interventions. They have to be implemented, which um, is, is a, a complicated task. But at the same time, yeah, there's, there's inertia. There's inertia operating underneath it. Uh, we have to remember, you know, Jennings, what I, I call Rodriguez, it started under, well, it started under Bush, <laughs> and then, uh, and, then and then the, the Supreme Court, the, the first time I argued in the Supreme Court, um, have I got that right? Yeah. I, or no, I think it was just after the election, but the, all the lead up to the Supreme Court was under the right. Obama administration. So, you know, we had decades of bipartisan commitment to uh, the over-incarceration of immigrants in the, through the detention system. You know, I mean, IRA-IRA is passed by Bill Clinton, as your, your listeners no doubt know. You know, it, it's, there's definitely inertia also operating there. Um, and then I think there's some things like the title, the, the failure to rescind Title 42 and open up the asylum system again, um, I have to believe is at least in part a product of political pressure, like, um, like people being worried that this is an issue that's going to be used um, against them um, and and being unwilling to do like a full-throated embrace and say, we're a humanitarian protection country. We realize there may be some social cost, but we believe these people will help our country in the long-term and we owe it to you know human rights and our commitment. This is not who we are. You know, I, I haven't seen that kind of, interestingly, I felt like Canada Biden said something like that in a debate. I don't, I don't know if you all remember that. I mean, he, he said, this is asylum. We let people. We we don't hold people out. We let them come to the border. I mean, and you know, he won the election. Um, but I haven't seen that same kind of full-throated embrace in practice on the ground. So I think there's probably a lot of considerations going on. Some of it inertia. Some of it, um, you know, that 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 the administration was actually always committed to detention in a way that the advocates don't agree with. Um, and some of it, I'm sure, is like politics and being worried about the the continued difficulty of immigration politics. Uh, so as we as we kind of wrap up here, uh, it'd be great to hear more about the work you're currently doing at UCLA Center for Immigration Law and Policy. Um, and if you have any advice for either law students or young attorneys who are, are trying to make even you know, a percentage of the, the impact that you've had on the field over the course of your career. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Uh, uh, together with this uh, professor Hiroshi Motomura, who is, um, you know, uh, sort of like a, he was like my guru, you know, he's a, he's a, um, an immigration law scholar, you know, the highest order, you know, so much immigration law. Um, and together with him, we started this new uh, Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA. Um, and it's really trying to kind of be a bridge between um, the academy and the uh, practitioner world. Uh, because one of the things I, I had a sense of over time, they seem to kind of operate in parallel streams a little bit. You know, there's like the practitioners doing their thing, and then there's the academics doing their thing. And there were definitely places where there was in, uh, interaction, interaction and overlap, but I feel like there was a lot more bridging that could be done. So that's part of the idea. And part of the idea also is something I've been interested in for years, uh, which is that the immigrants' rights movement, I think, can do even more visioning, visioning the world we want. Um, so that we're not always just reacting to uh, what we see, like being saying what we're against, but also saying what we're for. And actually, the immigrant rights movement has gotten a lot better at that in the last uh, two or three years. The Trump administration actually helped a lot in that respect. But I think there's still there's a lot more that can be done in that. Um, so yeah, we have a lot of really interesting ideas. We're trying to to look at racism in the history of immigration law in a deeper way than it, I think has been looked at um, in the past again, in, in the practitioner side, and there's academics who have written about sort of every, not every, but a lot of the different pieces of it, but really to look at those and see, well, which of those have relevance for today in terms of, um, you know, which provisions of the immigration code that are being enforced all the time actually are, are, are just deeply racist in their origin. Um, that's one, one piece. We're really interested in how state and local immigration policy can be developed, um, what more can be done at the state level and at the local level, partly as a way of kind of breaking the red-blue divide, because I think then different people can, you know, different governments can make different choices about how they want to integrate immigrants. Um, and obviously I'm looking forward to the, the teaching aspect too. You know, that's something I've wanted to do for many years and didn't get to do as much of as I liked when I was a full-time ACLU lawyer. Well, that, well, that's awesome. Uh, and Island, just let you know that we have a, a young uh, law student in our midst right here. So <laughs> he uh, might, might yet, get some yet. pointers, some tips <laughs> not, from you. <laughs> not, not quite yet, but hopeful law student in the near future. Oh, so. very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah. I and mean, I think, I think, um, what advice would I give? Um, I mean, if you're practicing in the Southwest, one advice I give is learn Spanish. Sounds <laughs> really like it's very important. Know, it's very key. Yeah, you know, in other parts of the People country, I'm not sure there's any one language like that. You know, Spanish is definitely incredibly important, but so are others. But but in the Southwest, um, by which I definitely you know mean LA, you know for sure, and and other parts of California as well, it's it's really important. You know, so um, and and I think you know you don't have to be native fluent, which obviously is not going to happen if you're, you know, at a certain age and whatever, but you can definitely, um, you know, study and then live in a country for a while um, and, and take the steps and it makes a huge, huge difference. Um, so that's one very practical bit of advice I give, nice. you know, more fundamentally, I just think I, I always feel like it's important to remember that we're, we don't have to do everything to make the world um, into the world we want to see. We, um, you know, you stand on the on the shoulders of the giants who came before you, and you just, you know, to mix metaphors, you just you you carry the torch for a while, and then you pass it on. You know, I feel like if you if you look at the whole thing, you see the whole picture, you think, oh, it's just overwhelming, and you kind of like, you know, just want to, I don't know, like go eat ice cream or whatever, you know, just like give up. You know? <laughs> give up. It's too big. It's too daunting. Right. Yeah. Right. But if you see it much more as um, 
you know, what can I do on my little portion of carrying the torch? How can I advance and make the world a little bit better? And I would say this is true, not just about immigrants' rights, but about sort of everything. Um, then it just feels like, how can I do my part? For me, I mean, I wouldn't trade the job that I've, um, the different jobs that I've had, but the, you know, the sort of role I've had for anything in the world, you know, I really wouldn't. Um, the, the people that I've done the work with have become some of my closest friends and, um, just kind of getting up every day and going to work and thinking, you know, this is what I get to work on. These are the things that I get to kind of advance, things that I really believe in. It, is, it has been, it's been an incredible honor to, to do that work. I'm so privileged to have had the, the opportunity to, to do it. So that's what I would say to any, any person interested in, it's actually interested in going to, to do immigration law for sure. That's what I would say. Absolutely. Well, Island, you are carrying the torch well, and just your career, your history, all the things you've done with you know, ACLU and now with UCLA, you're teaching, uh, you're definitely carrying that torch. And so we definitely here at Immigration Nerds appreciate that. Well, thanks a lot for having me. I, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. You guys are awesome. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week. Oh, 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 oh,